tititihi oruaine. To the peak of Ruahine. Enei, we o te motu, no mai piki mai ki tenei hotaka te ahikā, ko Maraia Rakuraku ahau. I'm Maraia Rakuraku. And I'm Justine Murray, and this is Te Ahikā. It's the last week of the New Zealand Comedy Festival, and one thing I've realised is one person's funny is another's kryptonite. And just like the Man of Steel, next week we'll meet anti-violence advocate by day, comedian by night, Pare Kōtuku Moa. This week it's funny fella Gish. Sure, that doesn't sound particularly Māori, but there is a story about that. Gish kind of started out without the poncho. Um, he was, he's always been a bit rough on stage, and because of how I how I speak on stage, which has a has a you know a little bit of ability in there, and you know, Gish is actually a character, but um, I do play on it as as my own person sometimes uh, myself. Justin Hanson or Nati Pro talking about his on stage persona. I never wrote Rahui to be a book about death or a, a sad book. It's just a, a story about, you know, a bit of life. A story about a bit of life. You know, the end of this book says, you know, the Rahui was over, but our love remains, and we went back to the beach. Mm. You know, it's gone but not forgotten. Um, there has been a process to, to restore kind of, a, I guess, a, a, an equilibrium in terms of your, your spirit. And... You're back to the beach. Chris C.K. and his book Rahui that's garnering attention and award nominations all over the place. He's up a little later. And an art exhibition featuring woolen blankets. Well, given our colonial past, why not? Primary focus was to look at people who were using New Zealand woolen blankets and that was definitely the commonality between them all. And also, I think for me as a curator... I was looking for some for work that was particularly well made and well crafted and I guess expressed a number of different views from both Pākehā and Māori because it is New Zealand blankets and after curating the show that's predominantly what came through with the with the artists that are featured. So there's those two histories that have come together in this exhibition and they sit here quite comfortably but I think on uh, kind of more on a deeper investigation of the exhibition. There's a lot of underlying themes that that are reflected in the works, which kind of which comment on our history and and colonisation, really. Natalie Friend, curator of A Common Thread. Nareira, yakuro rangatira ma mi atahuri mai kinga kaupa pakori no motinei haora. That's us for the next hour. Te aika. Radio New Zealand National. Now, I'm about to make a huge yet true generalisation here. We, as a Māori, are pretty funny peeps. Now, that's based on the people I courted or two around the country, and of course, members of my own humongous whānau. Yep. We're talking those aunties, uncles, cousins, nannies and crowa hiding out in the kitchens, kota, sitting rooms, hangi pits, couches, fishing boats, bush huts, prisons, nightclubs, all over the place, really, that are hilarious. Yet how many take it to the stage? Well, there's Mike King, uh, Billy T. James, Prince Tuiteka and all those musos who incorporated into their on-stage banter. Gish. 
Now, hearing that name doesn't automatically bring Nazi Pado to mind. Yet, Justin Hansen well and truly is a hearty Nazi, and his show Gish Takes has hit the comedy festival this year, which is where Justine met him. Gish. Kia ora, Gish. Mm, oh, kia ora. How's it going? <laughs> Good, thank you. Cha. First of all, let's talk about the name, because... Yeah, no, oh, sh- should we say your real name, or do you just want to be known as? Gish? Yeah, no, just 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 okay, gish, okay. just gish. Gish, yeah, yeah. G I S H. Where did that come from? It actually came from uh, my friends uh, when I was doing music school in uh, Wanganui. Well, if I can call them friends, because they were actually taking the Mickey out of me at the time, um, <laughs> and because uh, I had my hair growing on the in between, and I was trying to get it. I didn't want it short anymore. I was trying, well, you know, to, you know, too short to um, to, to, to do anything, and uh, yeah, yeah, to- totally, and too. Um, wasn't long enough to actually put into a ponytail, you know, to, to, to tie it back. So I was just like, yeah. and whenever I brushed it, it looked like Little Richard Styles. So, <laughs> and uh, we turned up at, um, it was my girlfriend's kind of uh, older auntie or something of some sort. And she's going, oh, look at you, you scruff. Look at you. God, look at you. Oh, you should do something with your hair, shouldn't you? You should do something. Oh, look, you look at a bit of a gollywog. And... <laughs> My other friends and stuff started laughing. They're they like, "Yeah, yeah, you look like a gollywog, bro. You look like a, you look like a gish mop, bro. A gish mop. Ah, oh, no, no, no. He looks like a gish. Ah." And I didn't even know what they were laughing at. I didn't know what a gish was. I knew what a gish mop was, and because like a lot of people haven't heard of what a um, gish mop before. No. Um, but it was a phrase that we used to use in um, in primary school. When they mentioned gish, I that's where they lost me, and I'd never heard of gish before. But it, when people kept calling me, it, it was like, yeah. oh, "Is that like from the the Smashing Pumpkins album?" And I was like, "I have no idea. I've never <laughs> even heard of that album before." But a couple of years later, yeah, sure enough, there's the gish album, and I've had uh, like what? How old am I now? Thirty eight. <laughs> um, Thirty eight years of that. Yeah. Um, that name. So, um, well, actually, not thirty eight. Because we go back twelve years now. It'd be twenty. Six years of that because wow. <laughs> I've been using Gish for the last twelve years now. Also, oh, it hasn't been just your on-stage name, your comedian name, or has it? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's been it's my been... on-stage name and and, and basically nick- yeah, oh. my nickname. So yeah, I just I just took it on board when I started comedy, which I never expected to do. I just thought oh, I'll use that for my name, and then yeah, and my real name just got scrapped. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you're on. Uh, you know, we spoke a little bit about this, um, and usually with Tiahika, or actually always with Tiahika, we ask our guests or our manu heri, our visitors into the show, uh, where they're from and where their iwi hapu marae is. Uh, where, whereabouts are you from? Where do you call home? It's a bit of a hard one to answer for me, but I was um, I was born in Rotorua when I was a very young age. I, like, I don't even know if I was one then. We shifted over to Australia, and then um, I started school over there when I was four. And then I think we came back to New Zealand when I was f- between five and six. Oh, yeah. And then uh, stayed with my grandparents in Rotorua. But we also shifted around because we never shifted really around. had a base to stay. And then when I was about just before, I think, my my seventh birthday, we actually um, situated ourselves out the back of Huntley in a little place called Pukemiro, which is um, cl- close to Wangara Hot, uh, Hot Springs. 
And I, oh, I, yeah. I grew up there for about 12 years and, yeah, and went to Huntley College. <laughs> Honey, why do you I say it like I that? I can't believe I blurted that out. And you identify your iwi as Ngati Poro, which is, well, again, across the other side of the... Yeah, yeah, it was always a little bit of confusion there with that when I was getting asked because I didn't know much about myself. And uh, over the years of people asking, I had to kind of try and follow up my um, my past and, um, yeah, found out that I was from Gisborne. I was actually from Gisborne. And uh, so every, every time I said I was from Rotorua, people were going, oh, that's not Ngāti Paro then. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, don't, I don't know, man, I don't know. So I've had to, had to put my head down and just ask a, bit of my, uh, a couple of my uncles and stuff where, mm-hmm. you know, why this is going on and I'm not actually from there but I get called this and that. Why didn't you really, really know where your roots were, essentially? Uh, I think it's because uh, a few generations, um, just a little bit before my time of actually knowing anything, I think it was my great-great-grandfather, they, um, I don't know if they escaped or something um, out of uh, Gizzy. Um, Big yeah. urban drift in the 70s, you know, the whanau moved towards the cities. Yeah, yeah, possibly, and um, yeah. Like I say, I, I don't know too much about it, honestly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, is that something that interests you, Gish, to find out your... In, in a way, um, but like um, over the years I've been slowly finding out bits and pieces here and there that I'm, you know, essentially I don't really know who to ask because uh, most of my whanau doesn't really know fully the whole story about what's going on. And yeah, my, my grandparents have died and um, so it's just my aunties and uncles that I have to ask and, you know, don't know too much about it either. So for you guys that don't know Gish, uh, Gish, you're on stage and your performance um, attire is a, a, like a poncho, your hair's out. Yep. It's kind of like sort of covering your face a bit. You've got the guitar. I mean, is where did you get the kind of the inspiration, the, the man behind, the man who is Gish on stage? Well, um, Gish kind of started out without the poncho. Um, he was, he's always been a bit rough on stage and because of how I, how I speak on stage, which has a, has a, you know, a little bit of ability in there. Just, and, and, uh, Gish is actually a character, but, um, I do play on it as, as my own person sometimes, uh, myself. Uh, the poncho introduced itself one day when I was at the Coromandel Celtic Fair and, you know, I was, I was wandering through there and. I'd never bought an item of clothing in my life, and I saw this poncho. I saw this poncho, and I went, oh, man, that is awesome, but I can't afford it. Really? Like, I can't get it off my mind. I can't get it off my mind. So I went down to go down and see Rosso, and uh, Rosso goes, mate, if you really, really want it, I'll give you the money here. So I went and get it, and that's how I, and I ended up starting to turn. Well, I, basically, I actually wore it for about a year, <laughs> maybe a year and a half, just constantly, nonstop, on stage, <laughs> off stage, yeah, totally. And... Um, it just become part of my set. <laughs> I mean, was it a conscious effort to make people laugh, or was it just, oh, yeah, man, this is this is gish um, personified? You know, the pants, the hair. Um, was it just? You trying to just you know crack a laugh? Yeah, it, it just it just it all just kind of just came together out of me. I've always been a little bit different. Like in college, I rebelled in school. I, I only mainly because of the uh, the uniform. I hated the uniform. I, I just, you know I've always been hard. I found it hard to concentrate at work anyway. But uh, sorry, at school, I don't work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I was in the uh, the fourth form, uh, my second year of college, I actually um, tried to start a. Um, a petition, petition gun, 
Yeah. Um, oh, so to get rid of the to uniforms. To get rid of the uniform. To go to Mufti. Yeah, yeah. And uh, out of the 500 um, in school, I managed to get between 160 to 180. That was only from the third and fourth formers. Uh, and yeah, it was a bit crazy for me. So yeah, that was that was my bit of rebellious uh, move. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always been a bit different, eh? Yeah, so yeah. So to rebel against off. hardcore, I wore an odd shoe to school. <laughs> Two totally different Ooh, shoes. Bad. So what? One nomad in one. Yeah, I stuck out like a like a sore ball, if you could call it. Uh, Justin Murray here. I'm talking with the Māori comedian um, Gish. Your draw card is song send up song parodies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I did a bit of music school in uh, Wanganui from '97 uh, to '99. There was a class that the one specific thing I actually got out of music school was this one class where they said today we're going to get you to learn how to write a song. Oh, okay, yeah, cool, cool. Uh, right, first you got to think of a um, you know, a feeling and emotion. So you know, that friends are coming up with angry, sad, happy, you know, and I was I came up with cheekiness, and so okay, right now you have got a couple of minutes to come up with a couple of chords that fit your feeling, and so um, I had like in my head I was going. So I incorporated that, and then so after that you had to write a verse. So write the verse, and then you had to go home and finish finish the song. So I, my first song was called "You Can't Handle It." When I was thinking about writing music, if I was going to write a song, because I, I, I had been playing a couple of Kevin Bloody Wilson songs uh, in the past. Oh yep. Every time I played them, people would actually stop and listen to what I was singing about. I was going to do my um, my serious songs at this venue one time and blurted out a couple of my um, funny songs instead. And the lady says, you're in the wrong place, mate. You should be down at the comedy bar. And I was like, oh, no, 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 it's not me. Hey. No, 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 go down there. You'll be right. So I went down there and um, long story short, within 10 days, which meant two Mondays and a Wednesday, I, I found myself in amongst pop comedy because they were doing the auditions then and that's how, that's how my career started, basically. <laughs> Marty humor. What does what 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 is Marty humor? Gish, given that you're Marty. Honestly, um, people always um, have had me up about my Marty humor. Um, what have, what have about, they said? Uh, yeah, taking taking the Mickey out of it, and like I've have had. Uh, it's it's normally been um, Maori elders that have had me up about it. Stop the show, actually. Stop shows. Um, wow. But just for me doing my first couple of minutes into it by saying, oh, oh, that, you know, that's that's. Against the Māori, you know. And like, well, you mean they've been in the audience and they've stood up or something? Yeah, yeah, stood up and, and and just basically said that I'm full of it and rah, rah, rah. And, you know, why do you take the puss out of Māori when, you know. And and I've always thought to myself, well, hey, you, you can't start taking the mickey out of anyone else until you, and still you, you can laugh at yourself, you know. You, you may look at me and, and I may look Māori, but, you know, I'm kind of um, almost can be a little bit far from it. Um, I try not to um, get too much in, in, into it, but um, yeah, mm. always ha- have um, some Maori come up to me and just and have me. Don't you, don't you think you're, you're taking the Mickey? Well, well, no, I'm just, I'm just kind of. It's playing on a stereotype, I guess, and uh, with, with a lot of gags that um, that, that 
anything as stereotyped um, just for the gag, you know? And if you can't handle the comedy, <laughs> to, yeah. or, or, or comedy's just about stories that you hear, what you can make out of them and stuff. I don't actually specifically intend to take the mickey out of the Māori, but it's just, you know? Yeah, and I, and I think to be fair, Gish, is that, you know, um, I'm sure everybody, Māori or non-Māori, kind of take the mickey out of themselves behind closed doors. I mean, for you, you're on stage, you're in front of hundreds of people. I mean, you are open to all sorts of criticism. I mean, you know, I've, I've taken the mickey out of things that have happened with my whanau. The only thing is, the difference is, is that I haven't said that to 100 plus people. You <laughs> yeah, have, yeah, yeah. so you're open to that sort of criticism. How do you deflect, do you deflect that? Do you let it um, affect you? Uh it does affect you because, yeah, it basically um, they, they've hammered you for stuff that you've come up out of, you know, from from here, you know, from your own um, part of you. Um, what I've noticed if, say, that same Māori person might have, uh, have got on my case about my stuff, but just before then an Asian guy might have got up and, and taken the mickey out of themselves, yet everyone will laugh at them. So, but then if you do it, to yourself, well, I don't find the difference. I think it's just the only difference is, is that they're, they're in the same seat as you are and mm. uh, maybe they have, because of the stuff that goes on in New Zealand as well, you know, with, you know, just land and um, past stuff that um, I don't want to get too far into it because yeah, I don't want yeah, to offend anyone over the so radio. Then, yeah, you know, that's fine. So song parodies, I guess, is universal. I mean, it's not only about um, Māori humour. I mean, everybody that you see on YouTube through the YouTube videos are laughing because they get it, like the song um, that uh, Gish parodied was to the tune of Hotel California. <laughs> There's so many ways to approach a parody. Um, the, the, I don't have any specific way. I might just hear a tune that I really like, and I, I want to do that specific song just for the for the for the sound of the tune. Other, uh, some songs just have a punchline, and um, I like the punchline. That, that'd be a great punchline. Now I got to work my way backwards from it, or, or start from the beginning, and try and make that story meet the punchline. Or sometimes you just have a, you hear a line in the song that isn't actually the end line, but it's a couple of lines in there that flow together. That you're gonna go, oh, that that'd make a great story if I could get that together. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So yeah, there's there's yeah, there's so many different ways. I find there's heaps of different ways. writing a parody do you kind of think um do you anticipate laughs from the crowd or do you just write it because you're just writing it and you're in the moment because men you know some people just um you know they crack up instantly when they hear the the songs that you've parodied or is that uh, do you think of what the parody is going to do to the audience and how it's going to affect them uh, well, in some in some ways, you do you got you know? There's always um, marks that you got to try and meet to go. Okay, he went a little bit over the mark there. Um, I've been writing it so long now that um, mm. sometimes I don't know what is what is right and what is wrong. Yep. Here's a good um, example: um, Ben Lummis. <laughs> you can't yep. take that away. <laughs> yeah, former New, uh, New Zealand Idol yeah. winner, the first one. When I heard that song, I thought, okay, I'm gonna 
I'm going to do a song about that because first New Zealand Idol, uh, hopefully the song will take off. Uh, well, I don't know if it will or not. It may not. I wrote a parody for it, and it was about, you can't tow that away, and it was about the parking meters and towies together. It was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. And I um, Can you sing us a little sample? I can't, actually. Ah. I can't because what happened is because um, the song didn't take off. No. no one actually knew the lyrics at all. And so I played this song and I've tried it several times. Nah, no one was going to go for it. Eh? So I had to drop the song because no one knew it. And it was a really awesome. I was so <laughs> gutted. I was so gutted. Eh? So, yeah, that's a good example of how, um, how unless you um, are used to a song or you know a song, yeah, that, that things can just come crashing down. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I mean, definitely um, when you get it right, it's a success and that's the draw card for um the well, well not only the draw card I shouldn't be saying that but it is one of the highlights of um uh, Gish's performance and um on that note Gish thank you very much thank you for gracing the Tiahi Kafari awesome and uh, good luck with your Wellington and Auckland uh, performance as part of the New Zealand International Comedy Festival and we've got links on our webpage www.radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Tiahi Ka Kia ora Kia ora Wellington Ciao Kia ora Gish Ciao Gish Takes is in Auckland next week. Go to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. All the information's there. At times, Māori concepts and the Māori worldview can be misinterpreted, all with the purpose of making it fit within a mainstream view. Yet, every now and then, Given the right context, period of time and care, it all comes together, which is really how it's worked out for Chris CK, the first Māori appointment to head librarian at the Alexander Turnbull Library. Woohoo! And his children's picture book, Rahui, illustrated by Malcolm Ross. The starting point was 25 years ago. Um, I was doing some writing for children. I, I observed that, I just thought there could be more. So I had a few ideas for stories and would scroll a few things down, um, send them off to the school journal. And um, and I had a bit of encouragement through uh, Ngapuna Waihanga and the Te Ha Māori Writers Group. And um, so I was doing some writing at that time. One of the stories that I wrote was Rahui. And um, a couple of things that motivated me to write it. One was, you know, I mentioned earlier uh, Rocky Shore. You know, still 25 years ago, <laughs> teachers are, uh, 25 years on, teachers are asking for Rocky Shore. And I thought, well, what are my memories of Rocky Shore? And for me, Rocky Shore was in holidays time, if we went on holiday, going, staying with relations down in country and just spending weeks, what seemed like weeks, at the beach. Yeah. You know, getting muscles, kana, power. Playing. Uh, mm. Playing, swimming, all of those sorts of things. That was my memory of Rocky Shore. So that was actually my starting point. I didn't start off to write a story about um, uh, about uh, a death. It just naturally came that way. Um, so that was the starting point for me, was really a lot of Kiwi kids' experience, uh, I think, were off summers like that, where you go to the beach and you see your relations you haven't seen for ages and things like that. That was the starting point. So the book starts off saying... You know, we go and stay at our relations, we go fishing, <laughs> we go swimming, we go ride on the horse, <laughs> earling, all those sorts of things. And um, then, you know, in the context of being at the beach, you know, um, 
just out of nowhere, as it as always happens, a tragedy occurs. As it always happens. That's what's so um, true about mm. this, is that things just happen just like that. They do. <laughs> and, um, you know, accidents, tragedies, and, and, and a life is lost. And I think lots of us have that experience, um, whether it's through a drowning or, you know, cousins or friends, people we went to school with. There's often a touch point there, sometimes if it's twice removed even, to um, experiencing um, someone passing away in an unexpected circumstance. So I thought, well, you know, that's part of life. Tangi's a part of life. You know, every day of every week, every year, there's a tangi going on somewhere in New Zealand. And to what extent is that reflected in our literature? You know, and what, what do tangi represent? Um, it, it's, it's a way of, I was going to say, dealing with, but that sounds a bit cold. It's, it's how we, we respond but it's a, and it's a aspect like Dahui is an aspect of oh, I might get this a bit muddled of a tangihana is that's all part of that process of tangihana. It's a bit like when um, you know you have the tramping of the house. Yes. You know they're all aspects of aspects. Not even the right word. They're all things around a tangihana that, you know, it's all part of that process, eh, mm. that then restores you, well, changed, exactly, yes. but it does restore you back. That whole notion of restoration is, is absolutely, I think, what it's about. As, so, as is the case with so much of how we live our lives, there's a spiritual dimension and a practical dimension. You know, we have Rahui not always because there's been a death, but because, you know, you've got to give the place a rest for a while to <laughs> let it restore. And... Um, and that can be applied to kai. Absolutely. So yeah. if, uh, for instance, you've been particularly uh, enthusiastic um, fishing snapper and that place needs time to rejuvenate yes. and to restore itself again, arahui can be placed upon it for a period of time. That's exactly right. I, I, I'm quick to, to say that I'm absolutely not an expert on Rahui. You know, my memory of um, Rahui's was that, no, you're not allowed to go, you know, and and we just accepted that. We did. You know, and um, it was tapu or, yeah, that's or whatever. Tapu. You know, not allowed to go there. Oh, that's all right. She's just plenty of other places to go. So, um, but in this context, there's a specific reason for, for Rahui, and it is a mix of the spiritual and the physical and the practical. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I never wrote Rahui to be a book about death or a, a sad book. It's just a, a story about, you know, a bit of life. A story about a bit of life. You know, the end of this book says, you know, the Rahui was over, but our love remains, and we went back to the beach. Mm. You know, it's gone, but not forgotten. Um, there has been a process to, to restore kind of, a, I guess, an a, a equilibrium in terms of your, your spirit and you're back to the beach. Because so much of um, te kana Māori can be misinterpreted and it's, I mean, oh, and you get weighed down by all the heebie-jeebie stuff. <laughs> like, I, I'm just talking about my experience. Um, but the beauty of te ao Māori is that it it has a beginning, a middle and an end in some of the processes that we use. 
I'm thinking in terms of uh, of a continuum, I suppose, and and things are cyclical, and the whole thing of um, to kore and things like that. It's uh, I understand what you're saying around you say Tangihana, for example. You know, you've got your three days there. You've got you've got some things that happen over that period of time. But in terms of um, restoring an equilibrium, getting on with your lives, your memories of people um, that are no longer with you. Does it ever end? No. You know, it's just part of living your life. It's not like, oh, I'm done. Now I've had my tongue. <laughs> oh, we had the tongue at the marae, so. that ends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I don't know if it's something to do with my age, but um, uh, in more recent times I've had, I have begun to think about childhood and, you know, some of my uh, friends and, and relations that who, are, who, who sometimes didn't make it through childhood, how would my life have been different if they were still here? What would they be like? And um, and not in a sad way, just 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 pondering on that. Um, so if you wrote this twenty or so years ago, what happened? It, no, 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 yeah. no. Are the illustrations from that time as well? Yeah. So what happened was I wrote the story and. Um, um, this particular story, I was talking about it, I think, in the lunchroom at work or something, and um, and uh, Malcolm, who uh, also worked uh, at the library at that particular That's time. That's Malcolm Morris. Yeah. Said, um, we started talking <laughs> about our respective childhoods. He was quite a bit older than me, but um, his uh, he had similar memories, and he had a memory of... Uh, uh, he grew up for a while in a Māori community, and um, it was Pākehā, I think they're the only Pākehā family in this community. His father was a teacher. And um, he had a memory of, you know, mucking about in the bush, eeling, all that kind of stuff. And then one day, you know, um, someone, you know, one of the kids drowned. And um, I think his father was called upon to try and resuscitate this youngster and, and it didn't work out. And, and so there was Tangi Rahui. And, and because I had already written the story, that unlocked all of that for Malcolm. And he became really... Oh, just really enthusiastic and, and offered to illustrate the stories. So that was great. I said, oh, that'd be great. So he, uh, he had a, a formal artist training and he set himself to task. took a couple of years to work up these different paintings. And, um, and, and that was the project. We worked on this kind of in our spare time. Um, With the then, intention of getting it published? Yeah, the idea was to show the pictures and the story to some publishers and um, and just see what kind of response there was and if anyone was interested. But things changed. My job changed. Uh, I got busy with something else. Malcolm uh, moved away and um, and then, of course, later died. And it really wasn't until it might have been last, or last year or the year before that uh, Malcolm's brother, Duncan Ross, Duncan Ross, came across his paintings and I thought, oh, what are these? And um, and I didn't know Duncan, um, Malcolm's brother. He, he he tracked me down, got in touch and said, oh, you know, he told me who he was and that he had these paintings. And what was the story? And it all just went from there. Um, Duncan was quite keen to um, to, to turn, turn it into a book. And and he did that. He got um, some help with some uh, some friends of his, and they made some copies of this book and that to give as memorial as a memorial to Malcolm, to friends and family. And he showed one of those to uh, to Huia Publish, and on suddenly next day, there's a contract, and and Huia just got really excited about it, 
and it's been a wonderful thing. So for me, it's been wonderful. It's like something from another life has come back. It's been sitting quietly all these years, and its moment has just come. Indeed. Chris C.K. talking about his award-nominated book, Rahui, published by Māori Publishing House, Huya Publishers, illustrated by the late Malcolm Ross. Rahui is up for Best Children's Picture Book in this year's New Zealand Post Children's Book Awards. Now, reference to the rocky shore he mentions at the beginning of that interview was part of the school science curriculum back in the day. Well, that's what we all concluded after asking around the office. If you know any better, get in touch with us at teahika at radionz.co.nz. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. And like all our broadcast programs, you can re-listen to them again. Again, it's at the webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and this is Te Ahika. Laced with disease or swapped for ownership of a country, Indigenous peoples' relationship with woolen blankets has been fraught and explored in an exhibition at Wellington Gallery. Expressions. Mariah is at Common Thread. Natalie Friend, you curated the exhibition. Now what is it that you were trying to say by bringing together these artists? I guess my primary focus was to look at people who were using New Zealand woolen blankets and that was definitely the commonality between them all. And also, I think for me as a curator, I was looking for some for work that was particularly well-made and well-crafted and I guess expressed a number of different views from both Pākehā and Māori because it is New Zealand blankets and after curating the show that's predominantly what came through with the with the artists that are featured. So there's those two histories that have come together in this exhibition and they sit here quite comfortably but I think on uh, kind of more on a deeper investigation of the exhibition there's a lot of underlying themes that, that are reflected in the works which kind of which comment on our history and and colonisation really, and along with it, you know, there's that other connotation. Along with a blanket, there comes, you know, there came disease, and mm. so now now that New Zealand is at the stage where it's at, where we've all, I guess, we're getting smarter about it. We we all know more about colonisation, and I guess, you know, there's still that time where you have to move forward. There's a, a lot of artists in this exhibition that are making work that comment on, I guess, the state of it now, state of colonisation now, and, and the impacts of, of, of our of our history and how it sits for them individually, for their identity and who they are. Is it hard work pulling together artists who may not necessarily have exhibited together naturally? Yes, you you find like I. I bought, I kind of chose all these artists and brought them all together and it's not until you pull them all together in one space that they actually start to communicate with each other. For instance, I had two artists who'd never really met but are now in conversation because of this exhibition because they they do, they're all interested in, in I guess, in the subject and the topics that come with this material. I mean, it's so, you just can't get away from a blanket and what it means to people. Um, so... In that sense, you bring them all together and all of a sudden they go, oh, look how much we've got in common. And, and now they're all communicating kind of as a result of it. I think at some point the whole, about three or four of them are all meeting up for dinner in Wellington to talk about their work. Because they're based around the country. Yeah, like for like the, 
the artists who were in this exhibition, they came from as from Auckland right down to Dunedin. Uh, we've got Wellington, obviously Wellington-based artists, and we've got people from Hamilton, and then out in Taranaki as well. So you've got quite a uh, a mix of people who come from different areas and different heritages, who are all um, getting a message across via their work. Now, from my naive eye, I can see that there are a mix of media here. So, for instance, we're standing in front of a front of two flags that have. Uh, painting on them with embroidery? Yes, yeah, this, this artist has used, I guess she's used the blanket as a canvas to create these flags and uh, she's sewn and appliqued images and stars to create the flag and then incorporated landscapes into the background. So talking about, I guess, where she's from and the lands that she's from, um, and I think with mainly with her work uh, as she is of Pākehā descent, She's kind of talking about what this land means for her um, and and her ancestors. And then as you swivel around, there is a boat. <laughs> yes. Uh, this work is by Tracy Williams. Uh, she's an Auckland-based artist. Uh, it is called My Ship. Um, and what Tracy has done is she's constructed the hull of a boat and upholstered it with a blanket and the sails of the boat are embroidered uh, embroidered tablecloths and doilies. The boat itself is almost four metres high. It sits on a cradle. And for her, she's looking at the journey of her ancestors and and what they brought with them to New Zealand and how that is a part of, a part of her. Um, this is probably one of the largest works we've ever had in the gallery. Um, it's only about 10 centimetres shy of our ceiling and we have a four metre four metre high um, wall, so it definitely is a feature of the exhibition. And then here is a work that I'm very familiar with because I've seen it at various galleries around Aotearoa in the Ngāhina Hōhaia and her poi. Yes, we've had, we have had Ngāhina's work previously as part of an exhibition about two years ago. Um, when she was just had, when she had just started making the poi, and then obviously she had she was part of the opening exhibitions at the New City Gallery redevelopment, and this is a much uh, smaller work than the work that was there. And again, uh, Ngahin is referencing her history. I mean, she's she's from Parihaka, and that's always very much an integral part of her work and and who she is, and it's always strongly reflected um, there in terms of how her people were affected by colonisation and, I mean, Taranaki is famous for the passive resistance um, and so this is this is always very much a part of her work. And I don't think you could go past a blanket exhibition without including this work. So even though we had exhibited uh, a similar a similar work before, um, we couldn't really say... We had to make sure we got her here to be a part of this a part of this exhibition. You know what, Natalie, it must take some kind of figuring out to hang these works so that they're not in conflict or competing with each other because they're, they're very different. But I can see just the similarity between them as well. I guess the common thing is that the material is always going to exist as as a common element within them. Um, next to Ngahina's work, we've got the work of Catherine Morrison. 
um, who's very much looking at, at for her, uh, this kind of pioneering woman and the things that women did when they first came to New Zealand and the impact of coming with so little. Um, her works, she's got a beautiful uh, coat which is completely hand-stitched and hand-quilted and I'm not sure how long it would have taken but there's hours and like hours worth long. of, of hand-stitching and the thing with her work is every single part of it is stitched by hand and she also has two very large quilts behind behind this jacket that I would say are at least two or three metres square. So she's looking at that kind of journey of these women through the process of this, uh, I guess, methodical stitching and, and kind of endurance of the people that came here to, the, to New Zealand and how, um, for her... It, it's actually the technique that she's kind of going through the same journey um, by utilising stitch and really just needle and thread to create something quite beautiful. And on the wall next to that is a blanket that looks very much like one my nanny and my um, grandfather used to have in the back of the ute. <laughs> and next to that is this really cool, it's a um, stitched email onto a blanket. Yeah, so Leslie Falls is the artist who has stitched these kind of electronic transactions that we have between each other to, I guess, highlight the, uh, you know, we don't so much send a letter these days and we don't hand-stitch a lot of things. And so she's looking at the, that loss of technique and, um, and I guess, dialogue and communication between people that has come with technology and, the same, and it is the same with Akiko, whose um, work is the blanket, the kind of picnic blanket. She's uh, embroidered this blanket with like numerous small, tiny holes, and she's and she's very much focused on the fact that we don't necessarily sit around and, and do this so much anymore. And it is a it is something that has been lost with history, um, which is also a very predominant theme that comes throughout the exhibition. Now, as someone who's looking at this for the first time, it just feels very gentle, and it's reminding me of, um, you know, of that time where we did things slower, took your time to make something, and again, this is the same artist with the email. This is a letter. Yes, so she's brought it on a blanket. So she's, a, she's, you know, she's between the two works. She's very much making note of of this of this idea of technology changing our lives and um, I think that was the main thing that I enjoyed about this exhibition so much with putting it together too is that it does have a calmness about it yet when you read deeper behind a lot of these works they're actually making comment on things on quite um, important issues in in history and I found when curating it, a lot of it was about loss at the end of the day. It was a, a loss of history, a loss of technique, a uh, loss of people, loss of land. And so it has this kind of calming feeling about it, but I feel that underneath it all, the whole thing is, you know, it's been veiled by these beautiful objects that have been created over time and had uh, kind of meticulous attention paid to them. But there's, but there's a, yeah, there's these definite layers of of things that are not so nice, I mm, guess. Yeah. Of commentary. Yeah. Which brings us to this absolutely stunning work here that is actually layered. Yeah, so this is the work of Amelia um, Sims. 
she's uh, she's based in the Waikato. Uh, this work was borrowed from Hamilton Museum. They'd recently acquired it. Um, she what she has chosen to do with the blanket is very much a kind of create a three dimensional relief form where she's cut layers and layers of blankets and then stitched them together with a blanket stitch. Um, and when I say like it's not just one blanket stitch, it's about a thousand blanket stitches. And I guess her focus is to look at the the impact on what we have as people on our land. And um, so she's highlighting this. She's created a relief of called My Antarctica, Ross Island, and she's very much concerned with our environmental impact on our surroundings. So she's using a very slow, methodical technique to create to create an object that essentially we are damaging through a slow, methodical process. So she's kind of building it up and then like conceptually bringing it. Um, you know, it's very much highlighted. Kind of, I guess, at this whole idea of just use and throw things away and um, things like that, which is also a huge theme within the exhibition. And that I guess a lot of the, all of these blankets have been salvaged from somewhere. For example, the work by Suzanne Tamaki, her blanket was taken from an Air New Zealand plane to then create her flag. Uh, all of them have come from op shops. So there is... Uh, yes, op shops that are selling them for $30. <laughs> I think there's a few cheaper ones around <laughs> here. But what we have included in the exhibition is from a private collection of blankets, someone who has collected them. Um, what we wanted to do is when people came to the exhibition, we wanted them to kind of look at them and go, oh, this is something that was in my home. Mm. This was an everyday yes. object. And so what we've done is we've included these panels of original blankets and different designs from a number of the wool manufacturers who were based around the country. And we have found that visitors Kaya are coming boy, in. Kaya Princess Onihunga. Yeah, Moskil, <laughs> um, Patoni. So they're all, they're all here. And we have been finding that um, there's definitely a human, even though this is an exhibition of objects, there's such a human element to it because people are coming in and they're saying, oh, I had that blanket when I was... Well, those scratchy hospital blankets. Yeah, when I was five. My mother still has that blanket mm. now. I've got that blanket from my children. And so there's that... Re we wanted people to relate to it on a very personal level. And I think because of the material and what it is, you couldn't get away from that part of it. What's this? There's a work here that... Again, looks like it's layered blankets, and there's a mirror on the wall that says smother. Uh, and I guess this is the more sinister side of what a blanket might be used for. You know, it, it, you could often think of it as a comforting thing that you can wrap a child in, but at the same time, it can be quite a, a claustrophobic kind of object that, that essentially could smother you. And Victoria McIntosh, who's a Dunedin-based artist, has cu has created contemporary jewellery um, by cutting out, repetitively kind of cutting out these shapes to then construct a large kind of snake-like necklace. Um, and again, she's referencing that, I guess, that darker side of an object like a blanket and, and what it can mean for people. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. Beautifully sinister, though sinister. it may be. <laughs> <laughs> Now, here's an artist that I'm familiar with. It's uh, Amy Teratana, and it's uh, her photographs. Yeah, so um, Amy's used the blanket 
as a photographic prop within her work, and it's very much referencing, you know, who who she is and where she's from. For example, there's a, a one of the works is of a woman with a moko that says tuhui, which makes it pretty obvious where Amy's from. Um, but what she, the interesting that she's doing, the interesting thing that she's doing is she's using a lot of kind of modes of presentation, which are a very European style, to to kind of project what we would assume would be a European image. Um, for example, she's using a kind of an, uh, the, the, the round wooden beveled frames and then the arched frames as well. And those frames are again what I used to see in my grandparents' home. That's right. So you've got this, she's tying in with the ancestry and how, how Māori have represented them when you go to Marae and you see the frames and frames of all our ancestors. But at the same time, she's also referencing that this mode of presentation actually came from a European influence. And then within that, within the images, she's got images of uh, a woman with a pipe and um, women sitting with the blankets wrapped around them. So it's quite, you know, she's very much commenting on on how this impacted Māori. There's those kind of iconic images of the pipe, the blanket, um, those Māori maiden images that were created uh, to kind of romanticise what colonisation was actually like for an overseas kind of European audience. Whereas all of, behind all of this, Amy's actually looking at the reality of it for Māori. Now, from the time that you have the idea as a curator to actually to this, to it being up, what kind of time period are we talking about? I would say about a year. Mm. By the time I get the idea and then start approaching the artist, this one was a little bit faster because we wanted to pull it forward so that we could have um, uh, we could have it as part of the international the Wellington International Arts Festival. And so it's about a year. Obviously, in the last month or two, it's just this frantic process of getting everything here and getting all the information we need to actually make sure, I think, from the idea that all aspects of the exhibition that I wanted to cover were included um, in in the show, which I'm happy with, which I think I've achieved. (laughs) So I am now looking at a grey, kind of like one of those army blankets, and there's some intricate beading that at first looks really beautiful until you start to think... That actually looks like blood. Now, this work is by Andrea Chandler. She is a Nelson-based artist and has worked with Fibre for a long time. She's been part of uh, the Fibre Arts Awards and things down in Nelson. Um, Obviously, you can't do a blanket exhibition without referencing war and New Zealand. And so her work um, is called Recoil. And I think... What, with this, what she was looking at achieving was creating a beautiful object. What she has done is hand-beaded thousands and thousands of red glass beads onto a grey blanket. So initially we go, oh, this is lovely and beautiful and it sparkles and shines and I want to look at it. Yes. And then on further inspection, you actually realise what it is and, and it's a little bit more, I guess, real in, in that the reality of what these grey army blankets were used for. It does, yeah, Yeah. and that's exactly what she's aiming to do. Um, She talked to me a little bit about it and saying that what, you know, she called it recoil, but she's also said, you know, there's this recoil of of the gun and the action, you know, that actually creates a blood splatter, but what she often, what she also wanted to 
achieve was when people are looking at it, they kind of recoil. They'll come in and then they yeah. take back. Well, I've, the, I've kind of recoiled from it. Yeah, and so... Yeah. Um, and I think that it's is... Like, ah, it is quite a common theme without, throughout the exhibition. You are drawn in by these beautifully crafted objects and you think, oh, that's really nice, and then you realise what it's actually talking about and, um, and I guess it challenges your your perception of, of the actual object. and Gosh, you know what I always think of when I come to exhibitions like this is in a big wide space like this, you can see their beauty and appreciate it, but when they go back home, what happens? I mean, where the heck is that boat going to go? Uh, this boat actually came courtesy of Tauranga Girls High School. Uh, it was exhibited originally at Tauranga Art Gallery as part of an exhibition there. And at the end of the exhibition, it was that very question of where is this boat going to go? And uh, the gallery organised that Tauranga, because Tracy Williams went to Tauranga Girls High School, uh, the boat then was gifted to be part of their collection. And so I think the plan is that apparently they are building a large new library complex and that oh, the boat will be on permanent display there. But this is definitely its first outing since Tauranga, and I, can, I guess you can say it's its first, uh, it's made its way down the North Island, and um, it's definitely its, its first sailing as such, mm-hmm. uh, if, you can, if you can say that it's, it, it got brought down here in a rental van, and um, it'll go back up to Tauranga, and then hopefully when they've, when they've got their plans, it will be back up on permanent display there. Curator Natalie Friend, Norangitane, Ngatikahunganu, Ngaitahu, talking about Common Thread, an exhibition she curated that closed today. Now, even if you did miss it, you can head to our webpage, yes, where we have photos. Anaira, a Brian Paiwai with this week's Fakatoki. Kitatihi Oruahine, get to the summit. And that's something we talk about all the time. It's in all our planning. Um, it's about that whole idea of it's a big, broad thing. We know we're going up and we're knowing we're talking about improvement and development. And eventually we will get there. And the other point of Te Tihi Oruhini for us and our little motto, if we want to call it that, is everybody has their own tihi. It's not like, you know, I know they talk about national standards, but it's not like every child has the same tihi. And every child should reach their tihi, and we should celebrate that tihi. Next week, I continue my coverage of Māori comedians, this time with Parekotsuku Moa. And I'm in Moirewa, meeting some of the whānau affected by the lockout at Tally's AFCO. And we'll have that profile on Arnold Manaki Wilson. Katukuna māwa kumaraya ngā mehi ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki me o rātou kaupapa. He mihi anō ki ngā kai rā wiki wiki mihini. Hoki mai hei tērā wiki. Mai te whānau a te ahikā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora.